Welcome back to the Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm Dave Rome, and this week's Deep Dive episode will be true to the Nerd Alert name. Joining me is fellow tech writer, Ronan McLaughlin. Ronan, I hear you've got your hands full with a few aero bikes. Yeah, well, you know, what would it be a week off work without spending it trying to route cables and brake hoses through time trial bikes and time trial extensions and whatnot? So, um, yes, I've had, a, I've had a good week off. Yep, good holiday working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, boss man's holiday. Nice. <laughs> well, speaking of aero bikes, uh, that brings me to our special guest for this week. Uh, Ronan, I'll let you do the introduction. Uh, well, if I'd have been doing this introduction about two weeks ago, I might have done it slightly differently. I might have said <laughs> today's guest, Dan Bigham, is a, a former Formula One aerodynamicist, all around sort of aero weenie, watch up, uh, founder, track and time trial specialist, former national champion, mm. mixed team time trial world championship medalist, uh, performance engineer with the NEOS Grenadiers. But he sort of ditched all those caps about two weeks ago, and he's now got one cap that I think he was actually after all along, and that is current world R record holder. So, uh, yes, today's guest is Dan Bigham. Dan, tell us, how does that feel to have finally ditched all those caps and, and got the one you were chasing all along? <laughs> That's such a cool intro. I might just steal that one instead. <laughs> it got a bit long in the long in the tooth, didn't it? We'll just go with, yeah, well, they'll record holder. No, it's, it's pretty cool, like really cool. Um, exactly as you said, it was something I've, I've always wanted and, uh, yeah, I never really thought I'd ever actually have it. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a dream. Funny, I don't, I don't tend to believe you when you say you never thought you would have it. Um, you know, did you, not only did you... <laughs> Not only did you break the record, but you put what four or five hundred meters onto the what was a three-year-old record at that point. Um, you know, so you've 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 gone and you've gone and added a significant amount to it. Um, was it was it was that sort of the goal for this year, or like a week earlier? We're still riding Commonwealth Games time trial, um, Commonwealth Games track. Was was the hour record always the goal for this year? Was mid-August always the date? And you know, presumably, you don't just decide to ride fifty-five point five kilometers next week, so. I'm guessing there's been a bit of a lead up to this and I would imagine going into it, you had a fair idea you were going to break it. Yeah, it was, uh, it, well, the idea obviously came, oh, you could rewind any any given amount of distance and I could say, yeah, it started back in 2014, but I think realistically it was in my head from early 2020 when I rode uh, an hour back in Derby, which is 526 and I was weighing up, oh, maybe if we go to altitude, like the numbers maybe stack up, it's possible. Um, I mean, looking at it now, it probably wouldn't have been with with how I was at the time, but COVID was pretty kind to me, gave me a nice opportunity to be selfish and focus on my own ambitions and bit by bit chipped away. And obviously last year broke Bradley Wiggins's British Air record and rode 54.7. And that's when, that's when it feels possible, like 350 meters, kind of in the realm of like a good day or good atmospherics or just a bit of fine tuning so that was when the project really kick-started in my head and at the same time joined Ineos Grenadiers and they were super keen to to support the project in its entirety not just a case of like yeah happy go for it it was like a we'll we'll support you in every respect partners um, financial support all the, the team support access to all of our training scientists physiologists um, the whole work so that was uh, yeah what got the ball rolling and opened a whole lot of doors to to improvements and uh yeah in, in training we well we had a, a full practice run in june that really cemented it as a let's let's go and do this where uh we broke we broke the hour record by just over half a lap uh early june so that was a case of okay it's definitely achievable we've just got to go and do this again but with 
with everything all formal rather than uh, just rocking up on a random midweek afternoon and, and riding full gas for an hour around the velodrome. Uh, so yeah, that that was the the moment, as it were. Um, but I guess the date itself was always always set in stone. It was quite interesting. The media had picked up on on Filippo's record planned to be late August, and mine had never leaked out for whatever reason. Obviously, I'm not Filippo Garner, so who <laughs> has an interest when Dan's fight to do his L record or not? Uh, but the, well, he's yeah, not just, a world record holder. <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> so the plan was me to do it and then Filippo to go a couple of days later uh but he decided he wanted to postpone and, and push it back so he'll be going at some point in the in the next few months I expect no, no fixed date yet but uh yeah my date didn't leak out until literally we announced it a week before which is quite nice it meant I could be a bit more relaxed and have to worry about the press being on me and wanting a discussion every other week about it those pesky press either <laughs> you couldn't watch them <laughs> uh you mentioned quite a few things there actually I want to touch on and just uh dive into later in the episode but i think uh probably best to go back to yeah just early 2020 sort of a lot has changed since then you had mentioned back then that you wanted to try and break the air record in bolivia uh obviously we've had the whole thing that happened for the last two years you're now a performance and engineer with Enios grenadiers and you know fast forward two years you've now rather than go to Bolivia or even go to Mexico where the previous record was, you've decided to go to Grenchen uh, in Switzerland, which is where you broke the British Air record last year. Joss broke the uh, World Air record. Tell me just, you know, how, how do you, I guess the question is, you know, what, what do you gain by keeping it semi-local going to Switzerland? And what did you maybe leave on the table by not going to the higher altitude? Or how, how do you even begin to weigh that, weigh that up? Uh, it's quite a, a deep question in a lot of different uh, respects. So altitude benefits you and hinders you in multiple different ways. So benefit is your barometric pressure drops off, which means the air density drops off by a very significant amount, somewhere between 20 and 30%, depending on the altitude you go to, to what velodrome. Uh, the reduction in barometric pressure means partial pressure of oxygen is lower, which means your blood oxygen saturation drops off. So your oxygen supply to your muscle drops off, therefore your power production gets worse. And then the other one uh, that I think a lot of people haven't considered, but is still quite meaningful, is the fact that because the air density is lower, the Reynolds number that you experience when you're riding at a given speed is lower. So your CDA actually goes up when you go to altitude by a, a not trivial amount, uh, which I think is one of the reasons why a lot of athletes underperform when they go to altitude for our records versus what they expect from simple calculations. Um, because it, yeah, on paper back at the start of 2020, I was like, oh, great, I'll, I'll easily put three kilometers on going up to altitude. Um, when you look at it, it's probably <clears throat> somewhere in the region of about 300 to 1500 meters, depending on what your power drop off is. <clears throat> and that can be uh, a multitude of different factors your familiarity, your general physiology, how much altitude training you do or don't do, the acclimatization process. There's so many factors at play there. So you could go up there and Arguably, if you have a bad acclimatization, go much worse than you would do at sea level. And we've seen that in a few cases. Martin Toff Madsen went further in Denmark at sea level than he went in Aguascalientes at nearly 2,000 meters. Mm. And again, there's probably a multitude of factors. You can never really put it down to one thing. But um, in, in reference to my attempt, it was more a case of Filippo is very keen to keep it at sea level. I don't know if you can call Grench and sea level, but we can arbitrarily say it's closer to sea level than it is to, to Mexico. And I felt the same. I thought it'd be a nice thing to bring a record back to a continental velodrome to sea level, if we can call it that. 
um, or low altitudes because, yeah, it makes it, uh, I guess, something more achievable, something that doesn't really have that that virtual asterisk by it that everyone always puts by an altitude record. Oh, it was altitude. It doesn't count. And I've done the same. Like we've, we've taken the mickey out of plenty of athletes who've gone to altitude to go to records, Ashton, especially it doesn't count, but I mean, it does count. It's a, just a much harder thing to attempt, <laughs> but it's nice to do it at sea level where people can compare a bit easier. What's uh, what went into deciding on that venue? Like are there, were there, was there a short list of venues that you wanted and what was it that I guess, settled you on Grenchen? Uh, quite a few different things. Uh, I'd worked with a lot of different people who had gone out and done a lot of data collection. Um, this guy called an Irish uh, meteorologist called Shawnee runs a Twitter account called Aims for Sport and he, he downloaded 30 years of atmospheric data for every velodrome in the world and ran a simulation to calculate the given distance for every single day at every velodrome in the world. <laughs> to figure out what your options would be like which is no 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 small task um so that was quite helpful wow. um the main thing really with grenchen is it's quite stable year round uh which from from an atmospheric perspective so you don't see huge variations whereas uh, some coastal uh valley drones do and that's why they can be fast but equally that's why they can be slow and then you're at the in the hands of the the weather gods as it were you, you don't you don't know if you're going to have a good day or a bad day and when one millibar is 17 meters and you can see a 30 millibar swing, then suddenly the record being broken or not is literally down to whether you pick the right day or not three months out. You can't change it. You can't move wow. it. So uh, when you know you've got to pick it three months out, it's more about being confident we were going to have good conditions rather than rolling the dice on outrageous conditions. Uh, because there are other velodromes, mm-hmm. I would say, have the potential to be quicker and they're easy to get to. Manchester could could absolutely be quicker on its on its day. Uh, Odin's in Denmark was another option, uh, but yeah, they're all quite variable. Uh, the other one with Grenchen was it's quite easy to control the atmospherics uh, from a temperature perspective, which is is super critical to our record performance. And that's one thing we we really landed on through all of our science experiments. Getting getting hot prematurely is is pretty much a game ender, and that's probably one of the. So there's there's central heating through that venue, is there? Uh, it's just a very well insulated velodrome. It's very very efficient, which means temperature is okay. largely consistent. Yeah. Whereas, for example, in Uddens, I did a practice hour there in uh, July 21, and the temperature would swing three four degrees in an hour. This is basically a, a glorified greenhouse, okay. and I can tell you that's not much fun wow. when it gets okay. <laughs> it gets four degrees hotter yeah. than you want it to be, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. The the only thing I've done at the Grenchen Velodrome is have lunch. So we've uh, we've we've achieved very different things there. <laughs> it's a nice place. I've been there a lot. I've been going since 2017, and uh, Joanne and Eleanor there have been incredibly helpful uh, in in everything that we've asked of them, and l- just lots of little details that make life a lot easier. Obviously, it's an easy place to get to. Logistics are, are really good. Access to training time there really easy. It's it's all the additional things. It's not just yeah. absolute speed. There's the preparation that goes into it. The fact is Tiso Velodrome as well. The record's sponsored by Tiso and suddenly it's well, it's there. You don't have to worry about taking the timing halfway around the world and setting up on another Velodrome. So yeah, it, it, it all adds up to, to an easier run in. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Every, every time we throw to you, you mentioned a couple of things I want to come back to, but uh, the temperature there, uh, we've, we've heard, heard a lot about just how important not only the you know temperature within the velodrome is, but actually core body temperature as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I remember right from the live feed, we actually heard that you know we've seen you beforehand. You had ice vests on. You had all the things we expect to see athletes doing nowadays. But from what we heard, you had a core sensor 
not only were you wearing a cord sensor, but actually built into this new BioRacer skin suit that you were using. Can you tell us just, you know, what, what is the impact the temperature actually has and, and how did you control for it? Uh, temperature's huge. Uh, I, I have to be careful quite how much I say. I, I, I love to talk and I, I will literally tell you all the finer details and then I'll get told off for, for giving away an advantage because at the end of the day, an advantage is only that when your competitors don't know it. But um, from all the test runs that we've done, fully sensed up, and that's not just like a, a power meter and a heart rate. It's like multiple core sensors and core temp pills and all the atmospherics and measuring a lot of other things that I'd love to tell you about that are really quite interesting. But basically temperature is probably the critical determinant of success or failure in an hour record. And I don't think people have ever quite appreciated to the extent of which that really impacts. So uh, to give a bit of detail in what, uh, my June run and in my successful August run, my core temp was about 40 degrees Celsius at the end. And that's just riding around in 26, 27 degrees Celsius. So you're getting pretty, pretty hot because you can't cool yourself that much. So doing a huge amount of heat training, and this is where having Core as a team partner at Neos Grenadiers is really helpful because they basically seconded Chris, one of their engineers, into us for all of our test runs. So we had a proper thermal nerd helping us day in, day out. Thankfully, he only lived an hour away from Grenchen, so it meant he was there quite a bit. But he brought a lot of ideas to the table, but also meant we were collecting all the right kind of data and then doing the right kind of sessions. So things like, and you might have seen it in the the R record teaser vid that Ineos put out where I was doing a full turbo session with two paint suits on which isn't all that enjoyable, but it's a good way of uh, basically creating a really strong thermal stimulus and getting very hot and teaching your body to sweat a lot. So in those that one hour, I, I sweated, I think it was 2.3 kilos in the actual hour. In my practice run, I think I was 2.1. So it's just teaching your body to sweat more because sweating is, well, you're evaporating water and that takes energy. It's one of the, well, it is the most efficient way of cooling your body. It's about 70 or 80% of your total cooling in an hour is from sweating. The more you can sweat, the more you'll cool yourself down. And uh, yeah, it's just one thing you've just got to train. So, uh, and that's just one aspect of it. There's a lot of other things around pre cooling um, and also just general uh, perceived heat. So, how you perceive the, how hot it is. And again, doing training is one, one way of, of reducing that rate of perceived temperature. Uh, but it just takes time, it just takes that applied stimulus to, to get used to it. Are you now the person in a sauna that makes everyone else want to leave? Because <laughs> I've been sat there the entire Just time. Keep <laughs> piling on piling on the water onto the rocks until everyone else is out of there. I have had some weird weird uh, comments. Uh, I'd go into a sauna with a book and I'd just sit and read for like 30, 40 minutes and other people are like dying in there, but you just get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am that weirdo, unfortunately. Oh, uh, great. Great. I'm happy yeah. to hear this. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, we actually wrote about that core sensor on Cycling Tips last year. Um, and as part of that article, I did a couple of those sort of heat training sessions. And I can I can tell you like 40, I think 40 might have been the highest that I've seen in uh, our utility room with the tumble dryer going, with the heating on, uh, windows closed, door closed, tiny little room, no fan. It was absolutely horrendous uh for i don't know 20 minutes so <laughs> to be and that wasn't even riding all that and you know all that high an effort so to do that sort of to be hitting that sort of temperature towards the end of a, an hour full gas yeah just i can imagine the extra stress that would that would be adding on to the body with with that sort of water loss is uh, dehydration a big issue uh 
it probably starts to begin to have an impact on performance. Yeah, there's a, there's a multitude of factors that mean at the back end you're a lot lot less efficient. Dehydration, just general mechanical fatigue, glycogen availability, they all impact your your ability to produce power, which is probably another reason that you start to drop off in fatigue in the back end. Most most unsuccessful hour records fall apart with about 20, 25 minutes to go, um, and that's pretty much what our analysis has showed. And that's when it all starts to bite when models start falling apart because very rarely do people go and ride full gas for an hour. And uh, you don't quite yeah. ever understand what's going on there. And that was one thing that, yeah, we were just keen to do. So August was my seventh full hour in twenty in two years. So we collected a lot of data in the past two years to just understand what was going on there. Uh, you kind of get a bit more familiar with them as well, and they become a lot less daunting. The more you do, it's, it's just an hour. As Dalsit put, it's just an episode of Top Gear. It's not that hard. I don't know. Some of those episodes are pretty painful to watch. <laughs> so it's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just the fascination with doing so many hours in the build-up. We hear of so many, you know, throughout my time in the sport, which is about 20 years now, you hear about all these grand champions and TT specialists who all plan an attempt at the hour record and actually retire having never tackled even a single hour record. And as you just said, you've done seven. Uh, Surely that must be, you know, even even as you're saying, you kind of get accustomed to them. There must be some sort of physical and mental mentally taxing from doing so many attempts and just you know was it all just about collecting data towards that one big um actual official attempt on the the record or yeah just what's the fascination with doing so many <laughs> i think it's uh, a way of measuring where you're at you obviously have models and you can predict and i've often sat there and there's there's a really good clip actually from 2017 of me and the rest of the the well then team kjf who what bike guys so Charlie Tanfield, Johnny Whale, et cetera, sitting in Gretchen Valley Drome, staring up at all the distances. So they have these big uh, pictures of how far people have ridden doing our records there. And you've got like Rowan Dennis, 52, was he 491? And uh, me tapping a laptop, oh, we could break that record for 340 something watts. And then they go, can you do 340 for an hour? And then you're like, yeah, probably could. And it, it's just that mentality of going, well, actually, let's just go and find out rather than like messing about just prove the model works or it doesn't and you can continue to refine but um i'd say as well i don't think physiologically it's a bad thing to go and ride for an hour like we all do 25 mile time trials we all do turbo sessions that are an hour of intensity of varying degrees then it's just a physiological stimulus i'm not tapering down a huge amount for all of these things if not at all it's just it fits in with the training plan it's just another effort it's another stimulus to adapt to i think historically riders who've attempted it and to a certain extent the media as well have hyped up just how extreme and how scary and how it takes years off your career and years off your life to do an hour and i just i just don't buy into it i mean maybe i'm just destroying this this myth of the hour and how horrific it is and how um it's been built up over decades and decades but i just i I don't feel it's it's quite the same i think the more you do it the familiarity just breeds that confidence and that you can be comfortable in in what you're doing and it's 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 not that hard obviously it's hard it's you're riding full gas for an hour but it's not the super human effort that's going to to end your life no the media wants everyone to remember Jens Voigt's effort where uh he's basically ready for a wheelchair and to never leave it again after <laughs> yeah following so that's that's the story we want to, mm. uh, everyone to remember I think but, uh, I think only the R record holder could say it's not that difficult <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it was one of my best rides ever. So, it, but it was. I think often it's the ones that you fail on and the ones that you struggle through that are the hardest. 
And I don't know whether that's directly linked to the the endorphins afterwards of breaking a record, but I had one back at February 21 in Manchester where I absolutely collapsed 40 minutes in and dragged it home. And it was horrific. Absolutely. Like that was one of the worst hours. And I think it's the la- it's bad pacing. It's bad like strategies. And, and that's where you learn from going through those and going, okay, well, I can't pace it like that. And I can't go in without a mental strategy to deal with those hard moments. I need to put things in place. And I think because people haven't gone through those processes before the hour, they go through their first hour as the actual attempt and experience what I experienced then. And then they don't have the opportunity to put all those interventions and strategies in place to mitigate what is potentially pretty grim. But those those things, once you're in, once you've got them in your head, you can focus on them. And that's one thing we did a huge amount of for the hour was focusing on specific things to make sure that I was always in the right headspace. And people probably noticed it. We had like 10 people in the velodrome, no music, no loudspeaker, nothing. It was 45 minutes of pure silence. And that was absolutely strategic so that Johnny could listen to me breathing, could understand what I'm doing, could speak to me clearly and I could hear him. And then in the last 15 minutes, everyone who was there spectating, which is basically family and friends, were allowed to say positive things, things that put me in a challenge state that were actionable. So they weren't negative. It wasn't like, for example, if you're going badly, you need to find something. It was, you're going well, keep pushing on, position's great, just positive things that reinforce what I'm doing. And then you're in that position where you're getting rewarded for the positive things rather than thinking, oh, I'm going bad. I need to find something because you, you never can in that situation. And then as well, we so had, s- sorry, go on. I was going to say, you scripted the crowd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, Ben Williams, so he's our integrated performance lead in, in INEOS. His background's, uh, well, everything really. Uh, he was in special forces in the military, but has worked with in Formula One and INEOS Britannia. And he is like super organized and was everything, every box was ticked. And one of them was quite literally going to the crowd beforehand and explaining things that they could say, things they couldn't say, why that was important, because they're part of the process at the end of the day. They are part of the record they have an impact on on how i perform directly so uh making sure that they were aware of that and that the things they say do impact on me because I, I can hear clearly what they're saying uh and i have to reconcile that in my head and if it's a negative thing then that can be quite hard especially if it's in a moment where i'm struggling thankfully i didn't have too many mentally hard moments but i think that was more a reflection on the strategies we had in place and i had three things to focus on which was my breathing my head position and my my line so any time that my thoughts would drift, it would come back to that. Ride a good line, hold your head position, keep control of your breathing. And as long as you did those three things, everything is within my control. What happens for the record is is what it is. But as I just got to do those things to the best of my ability. Brennan, you you you're surely wondering about power. Uh, yeah, um, de- definitely. You you said there, all you had to do was hold your line, hold your position, uh, and and something else there. But there there. There was a certain amount of you know tucking in your shoulders and also pumping out what 340, 350, 360 watts. Yeah, somewhere in that we, ballpark. If we, if we were to believe what we heard, <laughs> so, can either confirm nor deny. Uh, well, I can neither confirm nor deny because I didn't run a power meter, so uh, I couldn't tell you an exact <laughs> measured value. But uh, yeah, based on the training runs based on all the error tests and the efforts leading into it, then yeah, somewhere around the 350 mark, plus or minus a handful of watts. It obviously depends on what, what how you hold your position. Uh, and that, that was another one, positional discipline over the hour, that what you can hold for five minutes or even 20 minutes is not what you can hold for an hour. You will fatigue, your position will, will get worse, and that varies person to person and how familiar you are with the effort. I'd say mine was was pretty good in that, in that attempt. Uh, I felt like I held my position very, very well towards the back end, but without measurement you don't know i could have drifted 
0.02 or could have drifted 0.05 and then that could be a, a 4 watt drift or 10 watt drift and it obviously has an impact um but yeah probably probably give or take we'll call it 350 for what it is nice round number but um it definitely wasn't in the 380 390 400 mark that a lot of other athletes would be able to do uh on the road i'm i'm not really in that ballpark uh i think my best ever 25 mile power was three about 375 380 i think off the top of my head uh and that's more like 45 minutes. So you've got another 15 minutes on plus the velodrome and all the other caveats of heat and everything else. Um, I'm not going to hit those numbers on the track. So, uh, yeah, but speed matters, not power. So thankfully it works out right. Yeah. And, and power matters even less, I guess, if you're uh, as aero as we've heard that you might be. Uh, I think the figure banded about at the time was 0.15 CDA. And now, obviously, you mentioned there you could that could drift, and you know it wasn't measured on the day, but you were riding with a parameter in sort of the week in the build up to um, the actual attempt, and presumably you had measured that. Can you give us any sort of idea if those if that CDA figure is true or false? Yeah, it's definitely in, the, in pretty much the right ballpark based on on all my training runs. But as I said, you're likely to drift, and the ability to hold that so something that I can hold for like a two k or four k sort of aero test or, or training run is yeah pretty much give or take that but what you can do for an hour is probably a little bit higher so uh yeah it's it's definitely around that region that being said how you calculate cda is uh, everyone always argues what you should or shouldn't include what uh what drive train efficiency do you use what rolling resistance coefficient do you use how do you deal with the centripetal forces with tire scrub forces and they all end up with different values so um yeah it's kind of a hard one but i think everybody with their own different model can can plug in 350 watts uh, plug in the speed. Uh, I weighed with my bike probably about 84 kilos over the entire hour on average. And uh, trying to think what else you'd want to throw in there. Uh, air density was 1.115, temperature 27.2, um, humidity 52%, pressure 967 millibar. So, any nerds out there who want to plug the numbers in, figure out the CDA for themselves in those spreadsheets, that should be enough. How, how do those atmospheric conditions compare? Like, is that the best you could have hoped for or the worst you were fearing right in the middle of the road? How was that? Uh, pretty good. Like, very, I'd say very good. Not the best. The best, actually, of that entire week was on Monday, Tuesday, which would have been about another, remember correctly, I think it was about six millibar lower, which is uh, about 100 metres. So I've done it Monday or Tuesday. Would have got 300 meters, uh, but unfortunately you can't, you can't just move it forward because the uh, the weather looks good, which is a bit of a shame. But uh, yeah, it was still really good. It was uh, so surely the the Irish uh, meteorologist uh, I spoke about earlier. He he did a bit of analysis and said that the conditions that I had were in the tenth percentile of the conditions that you would normally get in Grenchen. Uh, but he also said that I would have broken the record on more than 95 percent of the days ever in Grenchen in the last 30 years. Wow. So. Um, yeah, it's it, oh. obviously it was good for me, but then I could have done it on any other day. But obviously, you want to go as far as you can. So <laughs> ideally, better conditions. Your your mention of not being able to move the date is that that's UCI having to be there to adjudicate it. What's what's the what's the reason there? Why can't a rider be more flexible? Uh, I wish I wish they were. Uh, I don't know the the logic behind it, but it is a UCI regulation. Uh, I imagine it's to do with uh, well combination of organisation promotion etc but they're they're not so keen on gotcha. riders moving them around last minute um ideal situation you'd book in an hour record every day for seven days and then 
cancel the six others that you don't want but uh <laughs> i don't think yeah. they're quite so keen on that as a as a strategy so unfortunately yeah you've just got to pick it as soon as you you put your name in the hat for for going for the records which means yeah three months out you're trying to be as strategic as you can but there's very little that you can forecast three months out and be confident in so it's it's pretty much potluck mm. it's kind of nice though as well it uh, sort of stops people from camping out you know with endless resources and and cherry picking a day yeah it's a good point very good point but uh but uh on on that i mean i'm I'm probably let ronan ask most of the questions from here on out but one of the questions i had was uh your mention of joining ineos and having them give you the full backing of everyone behind you um could you could you have broken the record on off your own back like off personal funding like how much of a difference do you think world tour team you know, like, like where, where could a say a very fast amateur versus, I guess, the support you had? What's what's the difference look like? Well, I, I guess if you rewind back to to last year, that was self supported by British Hour attempt, so fifty four seven two three, and I pretty much paid. Well, no, I did pay for everything: <laughs> track hire, commissaires, all my equipment. Uh, obviously, some of my equipment was uh, a leftover from from who bought bike and all of our track stuff there. So my Argon eighteen. Um, but I guess that's pretty much possible. Uh, Martin Toff Madsen is probably another good comparison. He's a really good friend of mine. I've worked with him at the Danish Cycle Union with all of the, our work towards the Olympics on the track. And he's, yeah, very much the same. Rode for a continental team, uh, works for, well, now works for Bahrain, victorious. Uh, but yeah, he's had a, a good few runs at a few hour records. And I've been poking him for years now to have a go at this. And he missed the boat maybe um but yeah he's he's high 53s low 54s i think is his best one so far so i think that's achievable but the, i guess the big thing with ineos is just the amount of knowledge and the amount of resource and firepower they can put behind stuff like this so rather than it being my sort of uh i don't know if you call it a side project because uh, there was a huge amount of focus on it but things i was doing outside of work to to really push this forward Whereas it's part of my job now, and especially with Filippo and his ambitions in the future, that I, I am literally being paid to do this research, to work with the partners and to develop all the, the equipment, the strategies, et cetera. Uh, and it absolutely has been a team project. I think that of the, what have I gained, 830 meters. And I'd say about 50% of that is probably equipment uh, on the sort of drag side of things. And probably 50% is on, on execution, on physiology, on nutrition. And understanding the actual demands of the event and how we can manipulate them to to our benefit. So it's yeah, probably a good fifty percent has come from uh things that I didn't otherwise know that a lot of smart people in the team were very aware of and had the opportunity to action in in this attempt. Interesting. Okay. I think Ronan has some questions uh diving a little deeper on that, which I'll I'll let him return to. Mm. Well, I, I want to get talking about the bike and uh, probably yeah. more stuff that Dan can't actually talk about, but um, let, let's ask him anyway and see what he says. <laughs> it was a, Absolutely. a prototype Panarello Spectra, is it? Is that the frame name? Judging by your Strava, uh, that seems to be the, oh. the frame name. A uh, couple of interesting design cues on it. Can you tell us anything about it? Uh, so it, it is a prototype bleed track. Spectra is my nickname for one of my other bikes that so I mustn't have changed on Strava. But um, I like your good journalistic stalking there. <laughs> good clock. Um, <laughs> so the bike itself was, I guess there's, there's some stuff I'm allowed to talk about and some not because it, it's not publicly released yet. So it's it's gone through the formal UCI prototype process. So I'm allowed to use it for, for record attempts and for competition, much like I think a lot of bikes nowadays do because manufacturers are... Uh, 
are confident they sorry they want to be confident in their bike that they release when they when they go to market so they they take the i think we're allowed up to 12 months it, it won't be 12 months it'll be out pretty soon but um yeah it was uh a quite a an accelerated process i think it began sort of february march time so maybe six months of from first yeah. meeting to we need a bike uh but it was kind of all in all hands to the grindstone there was a, a lot of ideas a lot of testing done in a very very short time period um I have to be careful what I talk about because yeah, Pinarello obviously wants to, to talk and shout about it in their own press releases. But uh, there were a lot of very cool details to the bike and a lot of very unique aspects that I'm pretty sure no one else has considered or thought about or integrated. Um, and I think that was just more of a reflection on the Pinarello and the entire design team's willingness to, to try new things and to look in areas that otherwise haven't been explored and to, to kind of open new opportunities mm. up. So it was, it's a very cool bike and there's a lot of things that, even you guys haven't spotted yet, I would say. Uh, I mean, you're going to be pretty excited when it does all kind of get uncovered and talked about in a bit more detail. But um, yeah, it's pretty sweet. Maybe we should maybe we should put to you what we have spotted, and you can uh, either nod or uh, confirm or, or deny what what might be accurate and what might not be. <laughs> uh it's probably gonna be a whole lot of no comments but all right <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a good game let's go with it. let's go for it <laughs> from what i could see from the from the uh the photos that have emerged of the bike and they they're sort of few and far between but you've got this sort of you know the things you would expect dropped uh seat stays you know everything's aero profile narrow head tube just everything you'd expect on a track bike but then the thing that first caught my eye was that seat tube and seat post looks like it's a is it a, does it double up as like a cheese grater or something or is that uh <laughs> maybe we could get around this by you confirming what things might double up as rather than confirming what they actually are is that, <laughs> is that some sort of turbulator on the seat tube or, or what's going on there the italians love their parmesan like <laughs> it's just a nice cheese grater uh no comment <laughs> <laughs> that's that seat tube something I, I think i wrote about a few years ago from a uh, a professor from a university out of Australia was working on um, something that looked remarkably like that. So, I think a, a Google search on on cycling tips for for that might uh, might give you an answer, maybe. Or it's just a cheese grater that's completely unrelated. <laughs> Let's hope for the latter there. Uh, the base bars are quite interesting as well. They, you know, they drop down like you might expect, but they seem like they might be doing a, another job there. There's some sort of, I don't know, last year with the Rebel bike that you were involved in, we've seen the handlebars had a, some sort of wake generator built into them, into the profile of the, the tops. Is there something similar going on here? <laughs> uh, it's been a fun area for investigation, for sure. Um, I'm sure you guys have clocked Filippo's cockpit on the road, so... Uh... Similar, similar approach, shall we say? Um, no comment beyond that. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're going to get a whole lot of no comments here. We might, <laughs> might flip it around a bit and just, you know, we have also seen a new Belide Road time trial bike, and the two are very different. You know, the new Belide Road and the new Belide Track, um, they, they, they are very different. They're both uniquely Panarello. You know, you can tell by looking at them, they're Panarellos, but they're very different uh, in terms of the actual. Uh, you know the the design of a you know when you get closer and look closer at them, it, I would have thought going fast on the road and going fast on track are the same thing, and as such the frames would look very similar. But you know, clearly you've found some differences there, have you? Yeah, there's still different demands between the events. Uh, on the road, we we still see higher yaw angles than you would ever see on the track. 
not that you technically actually see your angle on the track, it's actually cornering flow. So the, the your angle at a given point is proportional to the distance and the center of rotation. And you also get pitch angles as well. So in theory, your your and pitch flow is coming from sort of your upper left when you go on a velodrome, whereas it's planar out in the real world. So there's very different flow on a velodrome. Uh, and also, well, there's, kind of, there's a lot of different things at play. We're running front discs, whereas on the road, we run either a deep section or a tri-spoke. We have water bottle integration on the road, whereas obviously that's not required or not even allowed on the velodrome. Uh, and you can be a lot more confident as well in where flow structures are going on the on a track bike you're very very controlled in your conditions whereas on the road it needs to be a lot more versatile across different conditions uh and obviously also need to fit uh your fairly standard group sets your shimano Dura ace with a specific size crank a specific uh q factor specific cassette all that kind of stuff has to be designed around uh obviously the, the shape it looks uh, yeah exactly you said distinctly pinarello and fausto literally sits on a lot of the design calls uh which is quite interesting uh, it's something i'd never have expected i'd expected it had been to more sort of engineer led but he, he is involved pretty heavily uh throughout the entire process which is pretty cool i think not many bike manufacturers probably have their their founder and and ceo sitting in all the design meetings of all the different bikes um but yeah, the, it just in general, track and road still are are quite different. Not not hugely so, but enough that they do do require different different profiles, different shapes, and different integrations. You mentioned the double discs or the front disc, and the uh, which is obviously different from the road. But they were from Princeton Carbon Works. I, I believe they were like flowing in the night before. Something that was very last minute. I don't know if Instagram stories are be believed, but is this the first time? And our record, or any track record for that matter, has been broken with tubeless tires because it looked like a tubeless setup from the from the photos I've seen. Uh, so, to my knowledge, no, it's not. I think the women's team pursuit world record was set on either clinches or tubeless in Tokyo. The German national team have been running that since two thousand and oh, definitely twenty twenty, maybe even earlier, but not many people have clocked that. So. Yeah, I would say it was definitely the first time I think the hour record's been been set on clinches. There are clinches, not tubeless. Um, primarily just around the ability to take the higher pressures comfortably and not overload the bead. It was, yeah, we're not running the 15 bar that you would normally run in a tractor, but we're definitely at higher pressure than, than we would ever run on the road. Um, but yeah, Princeton and, and the disc wheels. So uh, the, the first set arrived 15 minutes before I left to get in the taxi to fly to Switzerland, so about a week out. And that was the the sort of test set. And then the actual race set arrived quite literally the day before with Harrison flying in from the States with them. So they, they were tight. Um, but then they, the entire process was was very tight. The bike came a week or so before that. Uh, just all, all stuff last minute, even like the muck-off drivetrains, they'd been optimized until literally last minute and then flew them in three days before. So... Um, not that it ever hindered, they, they all came together and worked really well. And I think that's more of a reflection on how how much effort went into the process. But if you if you, everything turns up a month out, then you've wasted a month of R&D. And we, we didn't really have a month of R&D to waste. So it was push it to the absolute limit and make sure that we do the best we can in the time frame we had, which was, was very tight. Uh, but yeah, that was that was quite a fun one as well with, with Princeton. They jumped in wholeheartedly and said, yeah, we've never made a track wheel before, but let's go for it. And uh yeah, we had a lot of uh, a lot of fun development around that, looking at a lot of tire interaction, wheel interaction, frame interaction, 
in TFD in the wind tunnel on the track and yeah, just a, a good proper R&D process uh, with a nice tight timeline to, to add a bit of expi- excitement at the end as well. So the wheel set that arrived the day before was different to the those that you packed 15 minutes before leaving? Uh, marginally so. So a few changes around the axle, yeah. the bearings, uh, the graphics, obviously, they were a bit more in your face than than just plain carbon. So nothing drastically different, but yeah, just a few small improvements, which is gotcha. more like Princeton. Yeah. They, they've got their own little uh, engineering workshop at their, their base back in, in the States. So once I'd ridden on the wheels and we had a few uh, ideas and a bit of feedback around the axles just to improve them a bit, they knocked up some some more and bought them out. Very random question, but do you know what was in the bearings? Was it was it oil or grease? Uh, it was oil, light machine oil. Oil, interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Ren? <laughs> uh, the cranks as well, they're from your own watch up, new Kratos Aero cranks. Was it 64 tooth chainring, was it? But the, the cranks themselves are even more impressive than the actual chainring size. Um, aero, I guess, but what, narrow Q factor. What else is going on with those? Uh, so yeah, two things: drivetrain and Q factor. So the, the drivetrain project was quite fun. That was again another Ineos Grenadiers partner. Mukoff have a pretty amazing R and D lab that I don't think they ever shout about anywhere near enough uh, about the kind of testing they actually do do. And uh, yeah, effectively I threw at them loads of cogs and chains and chain rings and said tell me what's best. I've got my own ideas. I've done a lot of track testing and they went and, and compared as well and basically to and fro for about six weeks or so testing a multitude of different different options and then spending a lot of time optimizing and running in. And yeah, the the watch shop Kratos chain ring came out top, which is uh, was pretty positive. Uh, we ended up running the Izumi Kai chain and uh, then a cog that we'd made, uh, watch shop had made as well, which is basically a very hard steal. Um, and we're looking a little bit more at, at low friction coatings on that for, for Filippo's record. But yeah, we found a good amount of improvement there. And then with the crank, uh, so the, the good thing about the watchshop Kratos is it's effectively modular. So you can change crank arm lengths really easily. You can change spindle lengths. Uh, and that was one thing we designed around. So yeah, the Q factor is something that you wouldn't get on another bike. That was that was very narrow. Um, and the, the chain ring is very, very integrated. So it's a, a thicker chain ring. Normal chain rings are between three and four mil and this one's six mil. So you get quite a bit of stiffness, but also the airflow off the chain uh, is well, it's tangent to the to the dome surface. So it just ends up a little bit cleaner. I've got a pretty, pretty chunky 30 mil axle uh, with ceramic speed uh, bottom bracket in there as well. So it was just a, a very aerodynamic crank, both in Q factor and in design, very stiff, uh, low friction, low bearing drag, just kind of ticked all the boxes really. It was uh, yeah, a really good drivetrain setup, I think. That that chain is that's a was it a one eighth inch chain or is it a, yep. a three third? It is the, from the from the data I'd seen. There's um, I guess quite a few riders were using like a an optimized in the past at least for our previous records have used a, like a, an eleven speed chain like a three thirty two inch chain. So you your research has shown that a track chain can actually be quicker. Is that <laughs> it was within, is that what we're hearing here? Uh, it was intentional. Yeah um yeah okay yeah yeah interesting all right this changes everything <laughs> gonna get rid of the gears on my bike <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting i, I believe I don't, I don't know for sure but i've heard that azumi are the manufacturers of shimano's chains and um the yeah the better ones yeah. yeah the technology is basically the same the, the siltec coatings etc so to my knowledge the azumi okay. kai is effectively like a dura ace 11 speed but a track chain okay yeah 
makes sense. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the cranks are modular. What crank length did you end up running with? Uh, 170. Although uh, it's something I'm keen to look at a little bit more. So I haven't spent a huge amount looking around crank length. I've spent a bit time testing small differences here and there, but that's the one advantage with the, the Crafts crank. We can go from very long to very short just by changing an insert. So then uh, I can spend a bit more time playing about aerodynamically on, on crank length and what might be uh, might be some further improvements. Don't know how much really, to be honest. I'm fairly well refined, but it's a nice area to go looking in because I haven't spent too much time searching there yet. So uh, yeah, 170, which I use across the board, road bike, TT bike, truck bike. Um, yeah, it's been uh, the same for me for some time now. Cool. Well, uh, moving on slightly, um, I want to talk about just a bit about your day job, I guess, performance engineer. In your book, Start at the End, you've uh, mentioned, you talk about thinking in first principles, um, and the first principles of the R record, to me at least, seem like, you know, hold an aero position, ride an aero bike, go fast, but I'm sure you found a few more. Is there anything you can, well, first, is, you know, what what did you break down the record into and, you know, that, that others might not have thought of? And is there anything you'd have picked up on that journey that you will know, like that the NAS Grenadiers will benefit from and they're road racing from what you've learned on in the R record buildup. Mm. <laughs> I think there's a lot we've learned uh, from the record uh, and things already being actioned. I don't know if you guys watched the, the Vuelta time trial yesterday, uh, but if you have a close look, there's a few things the team are already doing that we'd, we'd learned throughout the hour. Uh, and I think there'll be a huge amount more, especially around the thermal physiology. Uh, I think we're all pretty uh, aware that climate change is, is something that we have to accept and have to work around nowadays and races are only going to get hotter and, uh, yeah, I think our focus around that is really going to benefit the team. Uh, I think on the equipment side as well, there's there's a lot we did learn. And just having those relationships as well in place, it was a really good project for me as a, an engineer joining the team to get to know all the different partners very well uh, and to really sort of understand how they work, how they function, how we can best interact and, and continue to develop. Uh, Fire Racer and, and Pinarello are probably the two main ones that we've really worked on the project, and obviously Princeton too. Um, but just being able to put names to faces go and visit them do something that really worked closely between myself and them and then going forward we can start to plant a few more ideas and and start projects that that will benefit the the team on the road both tts and road racers uh and then yeah the first question around how we broke it down i think it's it's pretty much how we we've always broke track events down which is basically what what power do you need and what drag coefficients do you need so what rolling resistance drive train efficiency and cda and then uh, where are you at currently and and what are your opportunities to move those ones forward and historically i've I've really drilled down on on the drag side of things and and done all I can to move them forward and then you kind of uh, start to hit your your head against the walls of what equipment will allow you to do with commercially available things without redesigning and unfortunately twelve months ago I don't think I could go knock on the door of Pinarello and ask them to design me a brand new bike in six months. They would have gone, Who are you? And uh, <laughs> that'd been that. So the opportunities that the team uh, presented were were really incredibly beneficial. Uh, but then yeah, the physiology side, as much as I've had a, a great support team around me for the past few years and, and continue to have those those people involved, uh, with Jacob Tipper, my coach, Johnny Whale, Medi Cordy and and a few others, then suddenly you're accessing literally some of the brightest minds in the sport who often have a lot of ideas that apply to events like the hour record, but don't always have the opportunity to to apply them. It's surprisingly quite hard to get buy-in sometimes with uh, World Tour Cycling because it's it's quite 
it's quite regimented and quite structured, but also um, quite time constrained. So you, you don't have infinite resource on race. You can't suddenly throw 10 new interventions at, at the guys on race because they're all busy. The mechanics are, are working all hours of the day. The carers are absolutely flat out. You can't just suddenly demand 10 more things from them and expect them to be able to do it. Whereas with the hour, we're a bit less resource stretched and able to, to apply those kind of interventions and prove that they work. And then you can obviously uh use them for for the benefit and and rank them as well and to be able to say this is really really important this this really was beneficial whereas some stuff maybe not to the same extreme um and it just is a nice use case for the people to see firsthand the benefit of, of all those different things that you want to bring to the party on the road definitely a strong proof case mm-hmm. with with that in mind i guess you know you you mentioned that world tour cycling is you know quite sort of regimented and it's it's not just as easy as, you know, I think I heard you say somewhere else that you can't, you just have to accept that you can't get every rider optimized for every race. You have to sort of find a happy medium and, and work towards specific events where you can optimize, you know, one or two riders uh, as, as highly as possible. But there is also, you know, a, a hefty dose of just this old school mentality with uh, probably less and less more so nowadays, but uh, there is still a, a bit of old school mentality and, I had a conversation with uh, I've made a man there since you broke the record, and you know the the sort of the old school mentality drags a lot of people back to thinking, you know, well, a bigger engine must mean a better athlete. Uh, and as you mentioned there earlier, you know, you you didn't put out the most amount of watts, but you know, you balance that with the the ability to you know ride in this highly aerodynamic position and. You know, just understanding everything that there is about the event, and this is probably like the the most well prepared our record that I've certainly ever uh, seen. But you know, do you th- it's kind of strange kind of question. But do you think that given that you're not a, a cancellara, or given that you're not a Philippe Ogana, or you know whoever might have been in the past, Tony Martin, whatever, do you think that even though this is the most prepared event ever, that actually Dan Bigham being right there at the top might actually inspire more to go f- go for it sooner, perhaps to their detriment. But um, you know, <laughs> do you get the question I'm sort of getting at? Is that uh, despite the fact that the amount of detail that went into this, actually it might inspire more to to go for it sooner, just because of the sort of old school mentality that we have in the sport. Yeah, I would hope so. I think um, just as our record was one to do that, to really inspire people to to have a go, and obviously Ellen Van Dyke had. I don't think she's put it on the shelf, but she's obviously moved on a good amount. But uh, I think for Joss to go, because she wasn't she wasn't a, a Van Dyke or a Van der Bregen or a Van Vluten. She she was obviously competitive on the world stage. She was top ten at the world time trial, but equally showed that you can achieve really good stuff if you really focus and, and put a lot of effort into it. And um, yeah, and, and give it give it the the amount of uh, time that it deserves, really, because it, it's not something I think you can really do off the cuff. So. Ideally, yeah, I'd like I'd like to see them a lot more commonplace. I think the biggest bottleneck is the logistical overhead and logistical and the cost of actually just putting the hour on. And obviously, spoke about this quite a bit previously. And it's not just being on on the anti-doping whereabouts program, which yeah, give or take eight thousand pounds a year. But there's there's a huge amount more. That's probably ten percent of what the team have spent on putting this record on. When you factor in all the other things of bringing in international commissaires, having to put them on, bringing in the timekeepers, having to sort out a live stream, which you have to do by regulation, all the branding that has to be done, uh, just adds up and adds up. Having a second bike as well, things like that, they're in the regulation, you need to have a second bike and it needs to all be approved and 
just so many layers of cost and logistics and organization that just aren't easy to get through. And I appreciate why they're there because they want to hold this record in high regard and keep it, keep it as a, a sort of pinnacle of, of the sport. But at the same time, like it needs to be accessible. And how do you make an hour record accessible is, is quite a hard challenge, but I think it's something that the UCI need to, to challenge or at least like open it up towards maybe like national records. That was obviously something that I went for and it became a bit more commonplace. Fred Meredith obviously had a go at the British junior hour record, which um, I guess now you could call the unofficial world hour record, but it'd be nice if the UCI started to recognize those a little bit more and, and cheer them on as a standalone event, because I think, yeah, people find it quite interesting. It's, it's, it's quite a fun project to be involved in and pretty much every record I've gone to, there's always been somebody else there, normally a master's record, a master's athlete attempting a record in the near future and you get talking to them and seeing about their journey and how they've gone about it. And uh, yeah, it'd be nice to think that people have been inspired by what I've done and shown that it absolutely is possible and there's different ways to achieve that goal. Uh, but I think, yeah, opening that door a little bit more on the UCI side would be really nice to yeah get more people involved. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the, we obviously had the R record rush in the mid nineties and then the, you know, the, the UCI introduced the, the Merck's rules and, you know, the UCI have also had rules, you know, just to sort of keep a level playing field, but it actually seems that the more they do to try and level the playing field, the more it actually not only makes it more, less accessible, but also it kind of plays into someone like your, your, your own hands, because, you know, you can, you have the mind to go and work out everything that you can optimize around the current regulations, but then you also have the backing of the NLS Grenadiers now and all the budget that came with that, that, you know, you, you ran up against that challenge before you got to the NLS Grenadiers, but you know, I'm not, I'm not saying there should be no rules, but if you compare that to something like, um, you know, I hate to bring it up myself, but something like everything <laughs> that almost has no rules, I was able to up, optimize for that with the spare parts lying in my garage and a hacksaw because you know it, it's just so much more accessible um and i definitely feel your pain sort of trying to go for a few you know irish place-to-place -place records and stuff at the moment the same sort of restrictions are in place about you know you have to give three weeks notice and you have to have commissaries on site and you have to have timekeepers and this that and the other and it something i've been trying to do for four years but it does make it very very difficult to do you know and you sort of hinted at it earlier. The best thing might be just to nominate every date for a month, which is kind of what I've ended up doing. Um, but yeah, is, is there anything the UCI could easily do without taking away from the credibility of the record in terms of regulation changes that, that you think might just open up or make it just that a little bit easier for more people to get involved? I guess it's the paradox of regulations that the more you regulate, the more it actually assists those that you're trying to regulate against because it's those with the resource that are going to dig deeper and deeper. And by having a more open, broad regulations book, then it allows those without the resource to think a bit more broadly and find similar kind of improvements. The more you paint people into corners, the more it enables specialists and those with expert knowledge to, to make a leap forward. And it's trying to, I guess, make the UCI aware that the best way to avoid this arms race is not more regulation, it's less. But it's quite a hard thing to get your head around and the hard thing to understand. Um, but if you like, for example, if you look in Formula One, every time there's a rule change, you see a big shakeup because it rewards those who think differently as opposed to those who just spend money. But then over time, the richer teams move back to the forward of the grid because they can outdevelop everybody else. And that's the exact problem in cycling. As soon as we regulate to make rules tighter, those with resource that will move forward, 
um, which seems like a weird argument for me to have because I'd say we are a fairly well-resourced team. Um, and maybe I'm arguing against what could be to our benefit. But I think for the betterment of the sport, I think, yeah, more open rule books could be helpful. In relation to the hour record, I think it's a hard one because uh, you want to maintain the integrity of it and you want to make it as big an event as possible. Um, but at the same time, trying to yeah reduce things like, for example, the live stream, the cost of the live stream, the number of commissaires that have to come, all that kind of stuff would make it a little bit easier. Um, it's You could argue it both ways. And I'm just going to sit on the fence, I think, with that one, unfortunately, because it you, uh, obviously as a record holder, I want, I want the record to maintain its its sort of uh, its level and its integrity and its, uh, I guess, yeah, stature. But at the same time, it'd be really good to see 10 World Tour pros going to have a go in the next year. There's been plenty out there that say they want to go. People like Mikkel Björg, Danish time trial, uh, time trialist he's he's gone about it quite a few times he's done different records since i think he was 18 and um, i'm pretty sure he'd be competitive and it'd just be nice to see what they can do some of the big guys maybe like mads pedersen maybe stefan kung like really open the door to it because right now it's it's such an overhead and it's such a cost and you have to take a lot of time out of your season um i mean victor took what three four months off basically to go and go and break it and um i mean i didn't have a season to take time off from but i've been preparing for two years for this so it's it's not a small undertaking and anything to make that a bit easier would be pretty welcome. I think mm. it almost, it almost sounds like there's room for like a rogue one hour record, you know, like a, like a, like an Everest kind of completely separate of the UCI adjudicated where, you know, the rules still need to be met, but none of the logistical challenges have to be, have to be reached. Right. It's like a, an honesty system amongst riders. And then from there, you know, the, the best of the best can go duke it out for the UCI record, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a tough one. I guess that already exists. Someone, anyone can just go and book a velodrome for an hour and, and give it a crack, I guess. Yeah, maybe we book yeah, it for a day and do an entire hour record day and just invite a lot of the top pros along, an invitational. Um, come have a go if you think you're good enough kind of thing. And then everyone gets pretty much the same conditions, same velodrome, same day. Uh, logistical costs are reduced pretty massively because you could split it two, three, four, five ways over an entire day. Um, but then the the rule is, or UCI rule anyway, is you can the hour record can only be broken once a day. So if if everyone <laughs> broke it, then only the, the furthest would stand. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. An hour record world championships. I love it. Great idea. <laughs> yes, I'm all in. Uh, slightly slightly lighter note then, perhaps just to sort of uh, round round it up here. We're just tapping over an hour there, so. Um, seems right that we should finish our record episode around about an hour or so. Um, but could your record then, you know, given everything you've just said, given everything we've just discussed about the amount of preparation and went into it, and just everything that you've achieved, could it like, you know, people will now look at what you've done and say, you know, it is possible to do, you know, countless hours or seven hours in the run up to your actual attempt to to get a feel for it, to get collect a load of data. It's possible to get down to you know, whatever the CDA was on the day, it was, it was super low, you know, even if we don't know the exact figure, we know you, you're highly optimized there. Um, you know, it's possible for, you know, brains effectively to, to, um, to just beat outright, uh, strength, I guess. And, you know, knowing everything that you have done, if some freak of nature with, I don't know, 450 Watts to burn for an hour turned up and had all the above dialed in, and had you back in them, I guess, would probably be an essential part of it as well. And I'm not talking about anybody in particular here, but just, you know, a the- theoretical athlete, let's say, 
what given everything you know about an hour record now what is possible because we've had this situation for a long time where you know we we thought you know the the Superman uh, records from the nineties were untouchable, but you know you've proved now that that is that 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 is beatable. Um, we've you know we've had there's some video keeps popping up on my YouTube feed for some reason. You know, is sixty kilometers possible in an hour? Don't know if I've ever actually watched it or not, but it pops up there all the time. What is what do you think is possible now with everything that you were able to achieve and you know theoretically the world's best athlete as well? Are we talking same velodrome or altitude or best case? Probably the same velodrome. Just you know, if, yeah, because I, I do think that you know the the justical, you know, if we're looking for that kind of athlete, we're probably looking at the world tour and just logistically getting to Switzerland is a lot easier than, uh, as you mentioned, for someone to take three four months out of their season or all the other factors that you've already mentioned. But uh, yeah, same velodrome. Mm, sounds like a loaded question to me there but um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know let's take it objectively rather than any other values if someone yeah theoretically let's say someone can ride at 450 watts for an hour so they've got 100 watts more than me uh if you had the same cda then well 100 watts for me 20 watts is a kilometer an hour it, it becomes more power demand as you get faster but give or take a, a k an hour so in theory if i could put 450 watts out for an hour I would go 60k in an hour. However, someone with 450 watts is highly, highly unlikely, if not impossible, to get to my CDA. They're probably more in 0.18 to 0.20 kind of ballparks. And then obviously they've got another 60 to 100 watts of drag. So they're probably looking at somewhere around a 40 watt benefit. So that puts them another 2k an hour further than me. But then it's the ability to put that power out in the velodrome, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's not as easy as it looks on paper. Um, but yeah, I guess in theory, you could you could look towards a 57, but I think that's that's a big, big ambition. I think more than likely we're looking somewhere like beating like a, a Chris Boardman, Superman kind of position is, is, is a realistic kind of thing of what's achievable with like a top world tour uh, time trialist who really puts their effort into it. Um, but until, until someone does it, it's kind of a bit hard to tell. Not, not many world tour guys have really... Uh, have really gone onto track and ridden full gas for an hour to find out. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. I know we want to wrap things up, but I'm. I'm curious about that dedication of of time because if a world tour athlete, they have a job to do, right? Which is to to race on the road, and I guess a team like Ineos might have the budget to to dedicate an athlete to to spend enough time to prep. But what what sort of prep is required to do this record like i'm keen to hear from from your point of view of like you know you spoke about uh like the narrow q factor that you were able to use and the position that you had to hold for an hour like how much time you're devoting to being able to hold these positions so myself personally i, I spend well probably this year 90 to 95 percent of my time on my time trial bike my road bike barely goes out unless I go out on the road in Andorra and I don't like hills. So that's not all that often. Um, I do spend a lot of time on the turbo trainer, but uh, I guess that that is the biggest problem with the world tour athlete is they're paid to race the tour de France or go to the world champs or do their job. Really. Uh, they're not paid to break our records, but then obviously that also benefits the team when they do go and do it. So it's a, it's a hard one because they're always being pulled in different directions. And I was very lucky that I didn't have that at least not to the, to the same extreme I'm not getting picked for a race every other week at, at far-flung countries and whatever else so 
it's it's a big commitment to just focus on understand or learning and adapting to that position to the demands of the event and continually just refining what is the optimal gear what is the optimal position how do you ride that line with such a low head position what do you need to think about to keep controlled how do you pace it trying different pacing strategies trying different atmospheric conditions trying different warm-ups all that kind of stuff it just takes time and you've just got to be willing to mm. just iterate and improve and learn and that is what world tour athletes don't have. They don't have weeks and weeks and weeks and months, whether at, I can't say I'm at a loose end, I was never really at a loose end, but willing to to go to the tracks and to, to practice and to learn. And that's where I guess what I've done can help benefit Ineos for any athletes in the team. And I mean, obviously people want to talk about Felipe Garner, but I'm pretty sure there's other athletes in the team in the next five years, 10 years, who might be keen to have a go. We've got a lot of very good track riders coming through. Your people like your Ethan Haters, your Lucas Plaps, like they both went to the Tokyo Olympics and were absolutely competitive in the team pursuit. And as they keep developing, because they're both young, they're, then I'm pretty sure that's mm. something that they might consider in the future. Not that they they want to. I'm I'll, I'll be sitting there going, "Come on, guys, do, just give it a go. Give it a go. It'd be a good thing to do." But um, learning through me being that athlete means that they can fast track that process. Doesn't mean they can skip it but it makes it a little bit easier. We can kind of avoid those potholes and those cliff edges a little bit easier. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, well, for for what it's worth, as I said in the Cycling Tips podcast last week, I don't think it's as... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to take a very special attempt to to break what you have done. Um, and I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that some think for that it, it might be for for Philippe Ogana, for for all the reasons you just mentioned there, but final question for yourself dan is just you know what's next i'm sure if if i if i know you at all i'm thinking you've probably already found something that you could have improved slightly for your attempt two weeks ago you know what what's what's next for you are you going fully you know is it full-time with any else grenadiers have you got other you know goals for your own uh cycling career or, or what what's next uh hopefully the track world championships in october so uh, I had a really good uh, national championships earlier this year and broke the British individual pursuit record, rode a 405, which kind of reignited my interest in the pursuit. And I kind of, uh, I've kept my toe in it, shall we say, this year. I've done a couple of GB camps, uh, was meant to race at the Glasgow World Cup for GB as well, but uh, picked up COVID three days out, which wasn't ideal. So yeah, back to the track, uh, which was something I never really forecast because my wedding is four days before um so i'm getting married and then and then shooting out to to paris for for track world so yeah it's more i guess my my original ambition of what i really had a lot of passion for in cycling around the team pursuit and obviously with all things team kjf and who bought bike and yeah with a bit of luck uh on the pathway towards the paris olympics which would be be pretty cool um i'm obviously saying with any oscar and ideas i think everything that i get to do in the team is hugely beneficial for myself as an athlete and I had this discussion with somebody the other day and I said, yes, I have a full-time job and yes, I've worked in, in sport and continue to work in sport. But I think that is why I'm here as an athlete and not despite it. And I don't want to give that up. I don't want to be taking a year out to, to just ride my bike. I think having that structure around me and the ability to go and do all this testing and understand a lot more about myself is the reason that I do perform at this level and it's not to my detriment. Has has there been any comment from within the team about uh, pinning a number on you and sending you out on the road? <laughs> there were a few original discussions last year. Um, I'll be completely honest. I, I don't particularly have the interest in being a world tour cyclist. And I think a lot of people find that a bit odd. But um, 
I, it's just not for me. I, I know what I enjoy mm. and I know why I'm in cycling and it, it's not to do stage races and race up hills uh, or sit on the front being a, a domestique. My interest is yeah, racing the clock and pushing things forward on the tech front and that's what I enjoy and, and that's why I'm here. And I, I think if anything, I found my dream job with, with Ineos Grenadiers and kind of have the perfect balance in that respect. So yeah, even if they did offer me it, I'd, I'd be quite hesitant. I don't think it's what I want to be doing. Interesting. Interesting. Let's ask you that question again. If there's a team time trial next year's tour, oh. <laughs> I'd be good for the team time trial. I would not get around the the, the Tour de France. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, we don't have the uh, the race schedule yet. So who knows if there was? It'd be nice if there if there was a team time trial. I do love them. They are my absolute favourite discipline on the road. They're complete bedlam and really hard work. But when it all comes together, it's it's really cool. No, I'm sure we'll uh, get you back on if uh, once that race schedule gets announced, and if there is a team time trial, we'll we'll have questions. So <laughs> awesome, Dan! Thank you so so much for for joining us and sharing some knowledge and uh, not oversharing that'll get you into trouble. I hope. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we'll all hear about it if uh, if uh, if you have. But um, yeah, thank you for the time. Awesome, thank you for having me, guys. Pleasure to be on. All right, that concludes this uh, week's Nerd Alert episode. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, you know what to do as far as leaving a great review. You can leave a bad review, but just make sure it's five stars if you do. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.